We're in Daniel chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful in these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with its interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold there was a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong and its height reached to the sky and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its root in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers and the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries, the tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beast of the field dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged, it is you, O king, for you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one descending from heaven, and saying, Chop down the tree, and destroy it, Yet leave the stump with its root in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beast of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. 
This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beast of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this text and to the study of it to follow in a little while. Before we begin looking at this text, let's bow and look to the Lord. Father, thank you so much for the word and those here to partake of it. We pray your blessing on this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. It's safe to say, since we're all human, that there are those embarrassing moments in all of our lives which I'm sure we would like to forget. Most of us do not share these moments because we don't want people to know how stupid we were. For example, five to six years ago when President Bush was first running for presidency, someone uncovered the fact that at some point in his life he had a little problem with the law. That's not the kind of thing that you're proud of. I can understand why you would not broadcast this. This is one of those embarrassing moments in life that you would just as soon forget. That's what makes this passage so odd. Daniel chapter 4 is an amazing chapter, not only in Daniel, but in the entire Bible. Nebuchadnezzar, a Gentile king, gives his own account of how he was proud and arrogant and was so humbled by God that he actually went to the point of being insane and then he was completely restored to his position. The amazing thing about this is the purpose that he has for giving this account. He wants to give glory to the God of the Bible. He wants to give glory to the God of Daniel. It is a most remarkable chapter in all of Scripture. Now, there are many Bible scholars who believe that this is actually a conversion point in Nebuchadnezzar's life, the point where he really did come to believe in the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. John Calvin took the position that this was a turning point in his life. So did Adam Clark. He said that Nebuchadnezzar was a true convert who died in the faith of the God of Israel. God sovereignly did work in a remarkable way in this text. And in the next couple of weeks, we want to go through the passage. Now, the main theme of it is not too difficult to see. In fact, the main theme is very clear. God does whatever he wants with whomever he wants in order to bring people to the realization that he sovereignly is ruling over everything. God alone is sovereign, and he will not permit a person to take credit for his work. And those who think logically, naturally, would desire to be in a right relationship with this powerful, sovereign God. If you realize that God can do whatever he wants in your life, God can do whatever he wants in his world, you would naturally think, I want to be right with this God. Those who think insanely will think and act like beasts. And you listen to some of the testimonies of some people, you get the impression that God is lucky to have them. Well, Nebuchadnezzar does not tell it that way. Nebuchadnezzar tells the truth. And Nebuchadnezzar says, look, before I was right with God, I was out of my mind, literally out of my mind. Now, in this text of Scripture, there are three main headings whereby we can analyze it. Number one, you've got Nebuchadnezzar declares the greatness of God to the whole world. 
in verses 1 to 3, Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 3, How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now many believe that the things that are recorded here occur about 10 years after the statue had been erected. How in the world could you forget about what Nebuchadnezzar had seen, even if it did occur 10 years later? He had actually had Daniel reveal a dream to him that was remarkable. He had sat by a furnace and looked into a furnace. He saw the Son of God in a furnace with three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they walked out of there unscathed. And yet apparently it didn't take too long before Nebuchadnezzar started to forget about this whole point, about how great God is, how majestic God is, and so he experiences what will happen in Daniel chapter 4. Dr. Donald Campbell observed, this is a real odd introduction because... This introduction is actually a conclusion. Now I want you to notice, ladies and gentlemen, and this is something very important for you to see, this record that we have here in Daniel chapter 4 comes from a heathen political leader, and it is based in all honesty on what he experienced. What you have here is a heathen political leader testifying of the greatness of God. Now God can use all kinds of people to say things about himself, and he can speak through heathen leaders if he wants to do it. Those of you that are familiar with General Patton know that he was a tough, brilliant, shrewd, rough military man. I see no evidence of the fact that General Patton was a personal believer in Jesus Christ, but I can tell you this. On more than one account, General Patton testified that he believed the outcome of any battle was determined by Almighty God. He believed that the almighty God of the universe would determine who would win any military skirmish. And he would state that publicly. He would state that to those that knew him. In other words, regardless of what he actually believed personally in his own life, he had a statement about God that was profound. So does Nebuchadnezzar. Now, as we look down through here, there are five observations we want to make about how Nebuchadnezzar declares the greatness of God. First of all, his declaration is to all people. That's what he says in verse 1, all the peoples. The emphasis here is on all the known world. Nebuchadnezzar wanted the whole world to know that he had gone insane. He wanted the whole world to know that God in his sovereignty had caused him to lose his mind and that God in his sovereignty brought him back to a level where he was usable again. He wanted the whole world to know about the greatness of God in all of this. Dr. H.A. Ironside said, this is not only wonderful, it is a miracle. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's the way it should be when we give testimony of God. When we give testimony of our salvation, we should want people to know what a mess we were prior to Christ, not how great we were. That's where Nebuchadnezzar got into trouble, thinking about how great he was. In this text, he comes clean. He says, I was a mess, and it was in that mess state that God brought me out of it. Now, the second observation is his declaration is peaceful. You'll notice in verse 1, may your peace abound. A common way in the East to introduce something and introduce the subject was to begin by saying shalom, which means peace. Darius will do the same thing later in the book of Daniel, but the context of the peace that Nebuchadnezzar is referring to is clearly linked to a relationship with and an acknowledgement of the Most High God. And until one is in knowledge of the Most High God, and until one wants a relationship of the Most High God, one will lack peace in life. Let me say this another way. It doesn't matter where you're at in your own position, where you're at in your own world right now, until you're in a right relationship with God, you will not have tranquility in your soul. You'll be a miserable wreck inside. You'll not have contentment until you're right with the God who ordained your life. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar came to learn, that peace was found in a God of the Bible. 
The third observation is his declaration is very personal. Verse 2, it says, It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. This is very personal. This is what God did for him. This account is a personal account of what God did with and for Nebuchadnezzar. And when he uses those Hebrew words, these signs and wonders, he's referring to things that God pointed out specifically. God singled out for Nebuchadnezzar to see. And he testified that he was surprised and astonished. He stood in awe of the wonders that God did. God took this proud, arrogant, kingly position and humiliated him to the point of being insane. And then he brought him back and gave him his position again as being king. And Nebuchadnezzar wants to tell this remarkable story. And may I ask you a question that's very personal this day? Can you testify of signs and wonders that God has worked in your life? Are you able to see how the power of God has been working in you? You can give testimony to what you've seen God do in the history of your life. Can you look back and see changes that have occurred? Can you say, I have seen the power of God. I was a sinner dedicated to sin but now I'm a son of the living God dedicated to the Savior. Are you able to share with others what Nebuchadnezzar could share? I want to tell you my story and talk to you about all I've seen God do. That's what Nebuchadnezzar does here. The fourth observation is his declaration is about God's power. How great are his signs. That's what he says in verse 3. The point of telling this story is not to tell a story about how great Nebuchadnezzar is. It's to tell a story about how powerful the God of the Bible is. He can cause one to become insane. He can cause one to be blessed. He can elevate a person to high position of power and prosperity, and he can level a person. If a person will humble himself before the Lord, he will experience the power of God. Now, the fifth observation is his declaration is that God's kingdom is perpetual. Notice verse 3, his dominion is from generation to generation. Ladies and gentlemen, there's no kingdom, no political kingdom can make that statement except God's. No political kingdom has ever been able to say we're an everlasting kingdom. God is the only one who can make this statement. In God's kingdom, you don't have assassinations that eliminate the king or usurpations that can bring a kingdom down. God continues to sovereignly rule from generation to generation. Nobody can stop the program of God. Nobody can cancel the program of God. His will will be completely worked out throughout the whole world. It doesn't matter who's in charge. It doesn't matter if the person in charge is a president, a pope, a prime minister, or the Antichrist. The fact of the matter is, God will accomplish his will at all times. Nebuchadnezzar came to understand that important point. Which brings us to the second heading. Nebuchadnezzar declares the prophetic vision he received from God. Now, when you look down at the description of his vision in verses 4 to 18, there are six facts that he brings out. First of all, the vision occurred at a time when he was secure and successful. Verse 4, he was at ease in his house, ease in his palace. Nebuchadnezzar was living a life that was seemingly to him free from conflict and conquest. He was prosperous and peaceful. He was sailing through life in a lap of luxury. That's when God brought him down. And the emphasis is he was in his house, his palace. I want you to notice the emphasis of what he stresses here. He had no thought that God was the one who had blessed him. He had no thought that God is the one who had given him these things. He had no sense of dependency on God. That was the furthest thing from his mind. He was living in a delusional framework of false security. And that teaches us an important principle. 
Just because one is seemingly successful and untroubled does not mean he's safe in a relationship with God. I believe there are many people today living in a delusional framework of thinking that thinks they're okay and they're safe when in fact they're heading to eternal collapse. I just had a friend of mine whose brother-in-law died and he was talking with a family as they were making final arrangements and one of his family members said, well, he's better off now and my friend said, I doubt that. I doubt that he's better off now. He wasn't a believer in Jesus Christ, as far as we know. He's probably burning in hell. That's that delusional attitude that the world seems to project, that someone's just better off because they've left here. Look, just because a person thinks they have plenty of time to decide what they're going to do in life doesn't mean you do have plenty of time. Just because a person says, oh, I'll make a decision tomorrow doesn't mean you'll have tomorrow. That's the delusional framework Nebuchadnezzar was living in. Don't make the mistake yourself. The second fact is the vision God gave him made him fearful and alarmed. Verse 5 says, I saw these dreams and fantasies and I was fearful. They alarmed me. Now this, of course, was the very purpose of the dream. I mean, the reason why God gave this dream to Nebuchadnezzar because he wanted to scare Nebuchadnezzar. I think it's real irony here. God was going to wake up Nebuchadnezzar while he was sleeping. He's going to wake him up to the fact, I'm Almighty God, and he's going to do it in his sleep because he's not going to come to this conclusion while he's awake. So God says, fine, I'll give you a dream. I'll show you what reality is. The third fact is the vision could not be interpreted by any heathen wise men. Notice verses 6 and 7. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon. Now the one thing that I always find so wonderful about Nebuchadnezzar is he always wanted to know the interpretation of things of God. It's a shame that more of God's people don't seem to have that same appetite, where they really want to know a true interpretation of things. But this you have to hand to Nebuchadnezzar. He was a guy who always wanted to know the meaning of God's word. He was the guy who always wanted to know the meaning of biblical prophecy. And people who really are going to go somewhere in their relationship with the Lord are people who want to know the word and they want to know biblical prophecy. Now Nebuchadnezzar is turning to the wrong source for comfort and help. When he had this dream, he should have been turning to the men of God, but instead, here's what he does again, he calls the wise men of the Babylonian world and those counselors who could not interpret the dream that he had before, so he gets them again and asks them to come in and interpret this dream. People today turn to the wrong sources to put a band-aid on their fears and problems when in fact they should be going to the people of God who can tell them the truth of God. There are secular counselors today who are nothing more than charlatans. They are the blind leading the blind. They're making a lot of money in the process of doing it. These are the kinds of counselors who surrounded Nebuchadnezzar. He supported them fully. They were given lots of money for a counsel to him, but they couldn't tell him the truth. They didn't know the truth themselves. What's so odd but so true is that no matter how many times these secular counselors failed Nebuchadnezzar, he kept going back to them. I've known cases like that, ladies and gentlemen, Cases where the secular counseling field is failing. And a person goes to this back and back again and hands them the money like they're some kind of robot. Here, let's have another session. And they're getting nowhere. And then the counselor says, let's put you on some type of medication. And that gets them nowhere. That's exactly the framework of thinking that Nebuchadnezzar was in. I'll get all my secular counselors and let's see if they can give me a solution to this. The fourth fact is the vision could be interpreted by Daniel. Notice verse 8, but finally, look at this, finally Daniel came in before me. 
Now, even before Nebuchadnezzar presents his dream, he wants all people to know there was a man. Now, remember, Nebuchadnezzar is taking us through this. This is what happened to me. He wants people to know there was a man of God who could unravel truth. It wasn't my boys. It was Daniel. There was a man of God who could unravel the mysteries of God. And his name was Daniel. One would have thought after what happened at the first dream that baffled the wise men, and one would have thought after what he saw happen to Daniel's friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that he would have bypassed those guys and immediately went to Daniel, but he had not learned the lesson he needed to learn yet. You see, the wisdom of the world was nothing compared to the wise ways of God, and Nebuchadnezzar hadn't figured this out yet. But when you come to verse 8, finally Daniel came in before me. Now it's possible that Daniel just sat on the sidelines and waited till all the others went in there. He knew they couldn't do it. Belteshazzar was his Babylonian name that was given to Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar is very clear to point out Belteshazzar was the name that he had given to Daniel, but it was not his pseudo-god that could interpret the dream, even though it was one that represented his pseudo-god. Nebuchadnezzar realizes that Daniel, the Jew, related to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was the one who could unravel truth. When you're faithful to the Lord, I believe this with all of my heart, eventually those in trouble will come to talk to you because they'll discover after they've run down this rabbit trail and that rabbit trail and that dead-end street and this dead-end street, I've got to go somewhere where they can give me answers. And when you're a faithful servant of the Lord, you're a likely person to talk to because they'll eventually come to you because they want a true resolution to the problem. After they've run all over the place and talk to people who can't help them, they'll come to someone that knows the Word of God because this is the greatest counseling book in the world. Many times I've personally experienced that. I know others here have. Where people will come talk to you as a last resort. I've told you that remarkable story about that woman in Idaho who knocked on my office door in Idaho and she said, you're my last stop. I've been to counselors. I've been all over. If you can't help me, I'm killing myself. That's the first words out of her mouth when I opened the door. And she needed Jesus Christ. And she came to faith in Jesus Christ. And she went on, moved to California. We would later learn that she lived her life to the glory of God until the day she went home to be with him. You see, this is the book that has the real answers. And eventually, it's this book that can give meaning to life, can give answers to the questions of life. The fifth fact is the vision is presented by Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar, verses 10 to 18. Now, this is an accurate report that's given in verses 10 to 18, down through there by Nebuchadnezzar. There are six parts to the vision that he brings out before Nebuchadnezzar. Number one, he says, I saw a great tree which stood in the middle of the earth. Verse 10, I was laying on my bed and I was looking. There was a tree in the middle of the earth. Now in his previous dream, it was a giant statue. Now it's a giant tree. The fact that it stood in the middle of the earth means it held a central position of power, a central position of location in the entire program of the world. That's how big Nebuchadnezzar was. The second part is he saw a tree grow to become very large and beautiful and so productive that the whole world was nourished by it. He says that in verses 11 to 12. The tree grew large. It became strong. Its foliage was beautiful. Its fruit was abundant. You have the beasts of the field finding shade there, the birds of the sky dwelling in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves. Dr. Renal Showers says that inscriptions have revealed that one of the things that Nebuchadnezzar boasted about was the fact that he took care of people in his kingdom and he took care of them well. 
In fact, inscriptions have said he bragged about the fact that people flourished under his kingdom. So when you first see this tree that is standing in the middle of the earth, it appears to be so impressive, it appears to be so needed, so necessary. The third part is he saw a holy angel descend from heaven and cry out to chop the tree down. Verses 13 and 14, and I was looking and there was an angelic watcher, a holy one who descended from heaven and he shouts out, chop down the tree. This angel does this without any warning, without any explanation. He doesn't make any apologies. He doesn't come to Nebuchadnezzar, tell him why he's doing it. He just does it. One moment this tree is standing tall and impressive and the next moment it's chopped down to practically nothing. The fourth part is he saw the stump was to be left with its roots protected so he could share with the grass and the beast of the earth. Notice verse 15, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched. Now notice, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. I want you to notice that the tree changes from an it to a him. The pronoun changes. Let him be drenched. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, this king was about to be chopped down. This king was going to lose his spectacular glory and about to become a stump. It would be like being Saddam Hussein. One day you're strutting around in your palaces and the next day you're hiding in a hole in the ground and the next day you're in prison. You're done. Which brings us to the fifth part. He saw his mind change from a man to a beast mind for seven years. Verse 16 says, Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast mind be given to him. Seven periods of time are critical to the book of Daniel and you'll discover that this refers to seven years because his hair grows out as we'll see Lord willing next week. His length of hair would indicate this was a seven year sentence and this seven year is going to be critical later in the book because this is exactly what will be the time of the tribulation. This concept of seven years will become critical to the book of Daniel and to prophecy and his mind would be beastly. For seven years, he would think and act like a beast. Now, as the times of the Gentiles near an end, and I believe we're nearing the rapture of the church, this is a very important prophetic picture because what this picture tells us is that as the Gentile age nears a conclusion, people are going to become more beastly. You're not going to see people become more refined or more spiritual or more moral. They're going to become more beastly. And ultimately, they're going to enter that seven-year period of time that is known as the Great Tribulation. And that is why, when we look around our world, we're no longer shocked when we hear of a little school child who's been molested by a teacher or a janitor. That is why we're no longer shocked when people wear clothing and they look more like tramps than they do humans. And that is why it's not shocking anymore to see some wife and mother walk away from children, not caring what happens to them, not caring whether or not they're loyal or faithful to them. They just throw up their hands and leave. Or just recently when I was out riding a horse and some guy didn't like it when he comes down the trail and he goes on a tirade of F this and F that and F you and I ask him, let's get off your bike and talk about this. Of course, in my mind, I'm thinking, I hope you do get off your bike and talk about this. But this should not shock us, because as we near the end of the Gentile age, things are going to become a lot more beastly. They're not going to become a lot more solemn and sacred. And people who aren't right with God do beastly things. They think and act like beasts. Which brings us to the sixth part. He saw the purpose 
of this happening to show that there was a God who rules over all of mankind. Verse 17, this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watcher and the decision is a command of the Holy One in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. This decree was from heaven. It would not be overturned. And the purpose of this decree was to show it is God who controls every human being. He controls their mind. He controls their destiny. And angels are not only those beings that do what is positive. Angels also may be ordered to do that which is negative. And if God ordains an angel to do something that is negative, woe to the person to whom that is ordained. Which brings us to the third heading. Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's prophetic dream, verses 19 to 27. Now Nebuchadnezzar wanted to know the truth, even though if it were against him. This is a far different than Ahab back in 1 Kings. He hated the truth and the one presenting the truth. Nebuchadnezzar was at least man enough to say, tell me the truth. I want to know what this means. And Daniel knew what the dream meant, but he was in no hurry to tell him. I mean, when you're a leader for God and you know the truth, there are some times you'd rather not have to look somebody in the eye and tell them the truth. This was one of those times Daniel really didn't want to do it, but he had a responsibility to do it. And Daniel interprets the dream by revealing what it reveals in three revelations. Number one, the great tree which stood and nourished the earth was Nebuchadnezzar. That's what he says in verses 20 to 22. You're the large tree, Nebuchadnezzar. It's you. It's you, king. You've grown to become strong. Your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, your dominion to the end of the earth. Now, trees are often used in the Bible to symbolize political authority, such as kings and nations and empires. It's interesting that Jesus predicts as we near the end, religion will grow and become a monstrous tree that's filled with evil birds. He says that's what will happen in the arena of religion. It started out as a mustard seed, something small, but it's going to become a big conglomeration of demonic religion. So he says, first of all, Nebuchadnezzar, the great tree that you saw in your dream is you. The second revelation that he gives him is the chopping down of the tree and the leaving of the stump and the grazing of grass refers to Nebuchadnezzar who's going to eat grass like the beast but afterwards have his kingdom restored by the Most High God. That's what he tells them in verses 23 to 26. Now psychologists will tell you that there is a type of insanity that's called zoanthropy. Zoanthropy is an insanity in which a patient thinks he or she is an animal. These kinds of people who have this type of insanity will moo like a cow, bleat like a sheep, or whinny like a horse. There is a type of insanity called lycanthropy. Lycanthropy is a type of insanity in which a person thinks and acts like a wolf. And then you have another type of insanity called cunanthropy in which a person thinks or acts like a dog. One of the major characteristics of these types of insanity is that patients retain the sense of who they are while they're doing it. In other words, they're out of their minds thinking they're an animal, but they still know they're who they are. You can still address them by their name. That's the kind, apparently, of insanity that God sent to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar did not realize that it was God who had given him his prosperity and his position. He was taking credit for it, so God said, I'm going to chop you down. I'll bring you right down to size. 
God's the one who controls time of humiliation. God is the one who also controls time of exaltation. And one might ask, well, how long will it last? How long does the humiliation last? And listen to this and learn this until we learn the lesson. Ladies and gentlemen, when God says, I'm going to humiliate you and discipline you, the whole point of that, the whole reason he turns the heat up is because he wants us to learn the lesson. And the moment the person says, I got it, I've learned, I've learned my lesson, that's the moment he lifts the judgment. And once God decides to humiliate someone, once they respond to the lesson and learn the lesson, he changes the humiliation into exaltation. You may be here today, and you may be under a series of negative things that you know are coming to you right from God. And you may know why they're coming. None of us would, but you may know. My advice to you, Daniel's advice to you, is face the issue. Deal with it honestly. Deal with it humbly. And the problem's likely to vanish. That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Which brings us to the third revelation. Daniel's advice to Nebuchadnezzar was break away from proud sin and pursue the righteousness of God. Look at verse 27. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Daniel doesn't just say, I'm giving you a lesson in prophecy. Daniel makes this very personal. He advises Nebuchadnezzar, you make some immediate changes. You need to right now turn from your sin. Ladies and gentlemen, prophecy is designed in part to purify. Prophetic warnings should prompt God's people to change their belief and change their behavior. Now I believe the church age is near its end. I believe it is a beastly day that we're living in. And the times of the Gentiles will end in a very beastly way. This world is going to become more and more evil, and it is there. And if you really believe that, if you really believe that Jesus Christ is going to return soon, that prophetic truth should affect the way we behave. It should motivate us to be godly and obey Him. It should affect us as a man, as a woman, as a child. It should affect us as a husband, as a wife, as a mother, as a son, as a daughter. It should affect us as an employee, as an employer. If we really believe that Jesus Christ will soon rapture the church, then prophecy is not just something interesting and novel to think about. It's something that should affect the way we live and the way we think. But when Daniel gave his prophetic admonition to Nebuchadnezzar, it fell on deaf ears. Because when he said to Nebuchadnezzar, you need to change now and pursue righteousness, Nebuchadnezzar didn't do it. We who know the Lord are heading to face the Bema Seat judgment of Jesus Christ. The fact that we will face the Bema Seat judgment of Christ should cause us to obey him. If you are persisting right now in a life that is not obeying him, you're in dangerous, dangerous trouble. Truth is, there are many who are living in some delusional fog, in a false sense of security. There are those who think they're okay, God's never going to pull the plug on them, everything's just going to go all right. 
all need to realize God is in control of the very breath of our lives. And those who believe on Jesus Christ and live their lives humbly and honestly before him have nothing to fear. But those who don't believe on Jesus Christ or those who are living a lie in their life, you're on very shaky ground because your world could cave in at any moment. And in one instant, you can be into eternity. And I am convinced there will come a moment when some angel will be given some responsibility. Go bring them into eternity. I don't know when my moment is and I don't know when yours is. I think we could be raptured first. But there will come a moment when some angel will say, take them out now. It's time for them to come into eternity. And when that decree is given, it'll be too late to change. Now's the time to respond to God, the Almighty, the All-Knowing, the All-Powerful. Don't let your pride get in the way of change. Humble yourself to the Lord, and He will exalt you. May we pray. Now I'm going to get very personal with this because Daniel did. If you're here and you're trusting in anything but Jesus Christ to save you from your sins, you need to understand you are on eternal shaky ground. Every breath you take is a grant from God. And the moment he says your life is over, you'll be in eternity, it'll be too late to respond to Christ. Don't you leave here today without settling this issue. Right now, where you sit, you pray something like this, God, I know I am a sinner, and I honestly admit it before you right here. I thank you that Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of my sins, and right now I place all of my faith in him to be my Savior. For those who know the Lord, if you're undergoing some negative things, ask God to convict you if there's something that you need to do in the process of all of this. And if there is something brought to your mind or heart, deal with it. The negatives will go away. Father, thank you so much for your precious word. It's so real, so practical, so relevant. We thank you that you are a God who's patient, merciful. We pray, Lord, that our lives would be that which would glorify you, that we would be able to see your power at work in our lives. For anything that you've accomplished here today, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.